0: The 101. It's what Southern Californians call the Hollywood Freeway, which cuts through downtown LA and also through the northern part of the city. But it's also a late-time's lingo for our annual list of the best restaurants in the region. So whether you live here are coming to visit over the holidays or dreaming of a future trip because everyone should come to LA, this is your eating homework. The latest 101 list is now online, and an awesome print package is coming out this Sunday. And it also comes at a crucial time in food journalism because... The genre, it's a change in. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Friday, December 10th, 2021. We're not going to read all the restaurants in the LA Times 101 list today, but we're definitely going to offer some highlights. High-end spots, mom-and-pop places, Middle Eastern, Mexican, Korean, and beyond. I'll be honest, I haven't eaten out that much during the pandemic, so this LA Times 101 list is exciting for me because it's time to go out and eat. And let's hope there's no more shutdowns with Omicron, you know? But as a food writer, I'm also going out there thinking about how I should write about these places, how I should consider them. Such conversations have been happening in food journalism for years, but in the COVID times, the issue is more urgent than ever. My colleague Bill Addison is the author of the LA Times 101 list all by himself. He's our food critic and also helped to shape last year's list, which came out at a time where all restaurants in Los Angeles County were shut down for in-person dining. Bill, welcome to the Times. Good to be here, Gustavo. Thank you so much. So part of me just wants you and I to have this whole episode to just read the whole 101 list like performance art. Like Petit, Amatole,
1: Holy Basil, Crossroads.
0: We could we could go on forever. <laughs> And what's interesting is that this year's edition is appearing while COVID-19 is still real, but people can now actually go out and eat in restaurants indoors. So compare that to earlier in the pandemic, where indoor dining at restaurants in L.A. County wasn't allowed for the better part of a year. The 2020 edition of the 101 list acknowledged that and specifically celebrated, quote, resilience. So how do you define resilience last year and how does that spirit continue with this year's list?
1: Yeah, great question. Woof. I mean, resilience last year meant finding ways to literally survive, right? Or even miraculously thrive in a time of tragedy like nothing the modern restaurant industry had seen before or been prepared to face. Feeding people and doing it well with such heart during spikes and dips and cases and adopting to constantly changing government mandates. That was 2020, This year is about celebrating excellence in a new normal. And there's obviously still a lot of turbulence, right? That includes supply disruptions and especially labor shortages because people are frankly disheartened by the standard restaurant business model and they've turned away from the sometimes low wages and what can be abusive work situations, including uncaring customers. So... It's waiting through all that to also acknowledge and celebrate that Angelinos, Southern Californians very much want to be back in restaurants. I see yeah. a lot of packed dining rooms. I'm booking reservations a month or more out in the most popular places.
0: Are there any newcomers to the 101 list?
1: Almost a quarter of the list is new. It's always a challenge to narrow down the longer I do this list, the shorter the number one oh one feels. Just to throw out some off the top of my head that that come to mind that I really loved. Moose craft barbecue in Lincoln Heights. Have you been there yet? Yeah, that's great. Chicano-style barbecue. Exactly. Andrew and Michelle Munoz really bringing this cool melding of Central Texas barbecue traditions to Southern California and their own aesthetics. So great. I love, on the high end... Morihiro, the new sushi bar from LA sushi legend Morihiro Onadira, who hasn't had his own place in almost a decade. And he's back in incredible form. I am a deep lover of Lebanese cuisine. It's one of my abiding personal and professional interests. And this year I really loved Scaffs in Glendale, which does some kind of deeper Lebanese cuts, if you will, like kibbe na'i. It's the ground meat, often lamb, I think in this case beef, kneaded together with bulgur into this kind of silky, shiny mix that you drizzle generously with olive oil and eat with pita and pickled vegetables, and it's delicious.
0: And you also mentioned Fornalhara in Anaheim, which is a spot that I reviewed like over a decade ago.
1: Yes, I still I'm obsessed with that place. That's that's been there for a few years. Yeah, that whole area that they dub Little Arabia in Anaheim is a treasure that I feel like
0: more people should know about. What about some old school spots of, like favorites for locals? I'm thinking Hawkins House of Burgers. It's a Watts icon that's been owned by the same family for five generations. And just make these awesome, awesome cheeseburgers. They're so huge. Yeah. <laughs> it never gets
1: old eating those. It's like eating in someone's backyard. It's such a, a community vibe. Koreatown has these restaurants that I cannot let go of on this list. Parks Barbecue, Soban for the incredible banchan spread, Dong for the Galbi Gym, that that. Hulking beef stew that gets finished with a glaze of cheese that a server (laughs) uses a blowtorch to melt over top. I mean, yeah, so many great places. Republique, an all-day restaurant that's kind of a modern classic favorite of mine. Sonora Town in downtown. Still, you know, you know tortillas, man. So, (laughs) so some of the best.
0: Yeah. What about to get a little bit controversial, put you on the spot? Restaurants that you loved but just. Did not make it into the one one Maybe finished 105 or 103? One, uh, I hate this question because I never want
1: people to feel like, wait, like I was 102? I was this close? Like, why? But I'll throw out a few places. La Casita Mexicana in Bel. I love that place. Such gorgeous and vibrant food. And it's been on the list forever. And so I just wanted to make room for some new cool places I'm going to flip back to Little Arabia in Anaheim. There's a restaurant there called House of Mandi that's in the same shopping center as Forn Alhara, and it's Yemeni food. They make these hulking platters of spiced rice and long roasted meats that I love, and I just couldn't find the place. In the valley, there's apekade, which is Sri Lankan food that I love and that's been on the list before, and so please, go go try these restaurants too.
0: Yeah, I I see the 101 list. It's homework, but it's also meant to inspire you to try other places. So you say Sri Lankan food. I love Sri Lankan food. There's still one Sri Lankan restaurant left in Anaheim. So now, and I haven't thought of it since the pandemic. So now I'm like, hey, I want to go check it out again.
1: See, good. Then I've done my job. That's exactly what this
0: is all about. (laughs) We'll have more (laughs) after this break. So, Bill, yeah, I mean, 2020, you only started to review restaurants again this past June. You basically had more than a year's break. And you still wrote, of course, you're doing profiles and you're the author of our food newsletter. So how did food writing change for you philosophically during this pandemic? It gave me an opportunity to write stories and
1: think about food in ways that I largely haven't in the near 20 years that I've been reviewing restaurants because restaurant reviewing is a really specific beat. You are focusing on one individual business most every week for your writing Efforts, And if not, you're kind of composing lists like the 101, trying to do an an annual think of making sense of a city or a country's dining scene, you know, with a Best New Restaurants Roundup or a list of the, the essential restaurants in a city. So it gave me time to write stories such as considering... Palestinian identity through cookbook authors. It gave me space to pull back and think about the brokenness in the restaurant industry and the equations that are not adding up that we saw through the pandemic that workers in restaurants rarely have a net to fall into during difficult times. And it's tough because no clear answers have emerged about how to change things yet. I think all of us who care about food and write about food want to see business owners come up with solutions that make their staff feel more supported. And it's a hard thing to figure out because also restaurants are still struggling to survive in a lot of ways. They still aren't necessarily serving to capacity. You know, in the case of smaller businesses, they have maybe lost the audience that they once had. You know, I definitely see the disparity in restaurants where, you know, the flashy restaurants that get a lot of media attention are full to capacity again, but the ones, the mom and pops that kind of really define
0: their neighborhood may not have the business that they had before. And that's tough. That's what's incredible to me about what we're seeing. We're, like, you know, you and I, we belong to organizations like the Southern Foodways Alliance, the James Beard Foundation. We've been having these conversations of what should food media look like for a long time, but they never really bubbled up to the surface. Now they're out in the open. So you and I, we've been writing about food for over 20 years now. And we've seen that our genre changed dramatically even before last year. Like you mentioned before, usually when we would write about food, We do like these top line restaurants. We'd be interviewing or celebrating straight up jerks who were toxic because they cook great food and we would make excuses for them and we would never celebrate the workers. We would never celebrate the mom and pops. Why do you think we food writers did it so wrong for so long? I think journalism is a hustle
1: in one terrible, honest answer, right? And so we're always moving really quickly. And so we grab the target that's easy. Also, the culture of food was developing so fast that we were just trying to grab onto what was even happening. So it made sense to kind of grab onto spotlighting these people who were doing delicious, cool food, kind of coming from very different narratives. And we needed to do better. You know, we needed to learn how to step back and look at the bigger picture and also the more granular picture, I guess, of what is happening behind the scenes. Also, though, it's also still incredibly tricky. I'll be honest. Like, I love highlighting businesses where you can almost look into the kitchen and see what's happening and kind of study the culture. That's why it's been really satisfying through the pandemic to focus on pop-ups which we have a separate list for in the 101 and everyone should check out. And I want to understand what is happening behind the scenes, but in some restaurants that's still impossible to do. You know, if I am going to be a restaurant critic and an investigative reporter, like do I hang out outside the kitchen door and wait for a worker to go on a smoke break and then like ask them what's happening? Like are they going to welcome that line of questioning? You know, it's, it's a tricky
0: equation that I think we're still figuring out. And even just an existential question, the idea of lists, like, you know, you do these lists, these are 101 best restaurants in Southern California. And up until last year, the 101 list was ranked. Last year, it wasn't ranked this year it's not ranked. What's our responsibility now as food writers to tell people what's quote unquote best in a way that doesn't tell other people like, well, these are other good spots, but you should ignore those spots. Sure. I mean, also incredibly
1: tricky. I do feel like sometimes we're inside the bubble, Gustavo, you know? And so we ask ourselves or chefs ask themselves like, are these lists even necessary? But It's good reader service. Yeah. And I do think that it presents a broad understanding and and almost guide map to where to eat in Los Angeles. And I do think that that is a worthy, difficult task to revisit every year. And even if, you know, there there are so many ways to think about this list. You know, I feel like sometimes when I'm putting it together, I think about like, Mm hmm you know, what will other food media people think? And they'll be like, oh, you know, he put that restaurant on there again, and that's so boring and so expected. But I'm not really writing this list for for my colleagues in food media. I'm writing it for readers. And that's the bottom line of what I think about when I'm finally looking at the final equation of what I'm
0: putting out there. And the interesting thing is you're writing. We're both relics in that sense that we're still liking to do long, big pieces while the entire world now is a food critic. I mean, we are basically irrelevant. So in a world where everyone's a food critic, where does that leave us and those of us who try to do what we call quote unquote food journalism? Do you know what? I have been asking people this question a lot, particularly people
1: in their 20s and 30s when I meet them. I'm pretty, I'm pretty direct about it because everyone likes food now, right? Which I think when you and I were growing up was not necessarily the case. Food was not pop culture. You talked much more about the music you were listening to, the movies you were seeing. Now we talk about what we're eating. And I'm getting interesting feedback from people in younger generations than me who say, actually, I do like Google around and see if someone of authority has something to say about this restaurant because there's so much noise that I want someone to just tell me everything I need to know in one place.
0: Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because when I talk to younger people, I tell them like, yeah, food's cool now. Food's cool in a way that it's never been cool before. And they kind of laugh, but it's kind of true. So, but that said, (laughs) if food's going to be cool, then if we could change food journalism, then hopefully that trickles down to changing the whole food ecosystem because that's, that's a whole other thing.
1: Yes, and even if there's ways to to not just podcasts and TikTok and other forms of social media, but even still do what we've done for a long time and done well, if there are new ways to get that information to people, you know, I think it's a whole big, beautiful stew. And that's why we as food journalists need to remain nimble. <laughs> even as we do this podcast... I realize I'm so much better and are more articulate in print and writing words than I am in talking, but that's part of my growth journey too, you know, and that's part of what it means to be in food journalism now.
0: Just wait until the 2036 101 list where you're going to be doing like a hologram version or something. I'm up for it. Let's do (laughs) it. I will not be anonymous by then anymore, I'm sure. (laughs) Bill, thank you so much for this conversation. Thanks for having me, Gustavo. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Next week, another Masters of Disasters. And members of our newsroom open up for a holiday special. You will scream des madre or some other word. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Kasha Brosalian, and Melissa Kaplan. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editor is Lauren Rapp. Our executive producers are Jasmine Aguilera and Shawnee Hilton, and our theme music is composed by Andrew Epic. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow the Times on whatever platform you use. Don't make us to Podcasts. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back next week with all the news in Desmadre. Gracias.